Before we get into today's episode, I want to make a very, very exciting announcement. Today, I get to finally announce that my candle shop, Knox Investa, is going to be going live and being able to sell candles for the first time tomorrow. I am so excited. Uh, It's finally here. It took way too long, but better late than never. So if you want to be on the mailing list to know exactly when the shop goes live, make sure to go to noxvesta.com. That's spelled N-O-X-V-E-S-T-A.com. Or go to its Instagram, also noxvesta, N-O-X-V-E-S-T-A. We already have been previewing some of the candles and what's to come on Instagram, but the whole thing is going live tomorrow on Friday, October 22nd. I am so excited. So yeah, this is your heads up. So let's get into the episode now. When we think of pirates, we think of Blackbeard, eye patches, peg legs, parrots, but perhaps not Ching Shi, the pirate queen. Ching-Chi is a controversial figure to say the least. Some consider her brutal, whereas others say she was less brutal than male pirates at the time. But more importantly, not only was she powerful, but successful. Unlike many other pirates, Ching-Chi got to retire and live out her days in peace and quiet. So what did she do that others didn't? Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Prism of the Past. Today, we're going to talk about Ching-Chi, the Pirate Queen. Ching-Chi achieved a ton as a pirate, commanding thousands of ships and tens of thousands of sailors. Many even hail her as the most successful pirate in history. I'm obviously not about to condone her actions and say she was a badass, strong, empowering woman or something, because quite frankly, a lot of pirates and just piracy in general has been romanticized when in fact, pirates could be quite cruel. A lot of the times they were cold-hearted people that slaughtered and tortured anyone who resisted them. And this episode won't discuss this in much graphic detail, but if death does bother you, I understand wanting to sit this one out, by the way. Of course, that's not to say that every single pirate was that way, and there's still so much we don't know about pirates in general. According to one historian, popular culture has invested heavily in the image of pirates as anarchists who speak in colorful language and dress in attire recognizable to any five-year-old. In fact, what we imagine pirates to look and sound like matches only one decade in history. 1716 to 1726. Before that, piracy consisted of a spectrum of activities from the heroic to the maniacal. Many historians, like many pirate fans, write about piracy as a static phenomenon. This is the basis of popular events like International Talk Like a Pirate Day, September 19th, or the costume worn by Jack Sparrow. When asked if these common tropes are true, I give a typical historian's answer. It depends on when and where. Ching-Chi was born later in the 1700s and her reign may not be exactly what you expect. Today, we're not going to talk about the Jack Sparrow-esque era of piracy or foolhardy adventurers on the high seas. Let's talk about a real pirate queen and who she really was. Although not a ton is known about Ching-Chi's history, we do know that she was born as Shi Yang in 1775 in the poverty-ridden society of Guangdong province in China. Here, it was a relatively regular occurrence for very young women to prostitute themselves once they went through puberty in order to supplement their family's income. Shi Yang, as she was known at the time, was no different. She began working on a floating brothel, also known as a flower boat at the age of 13. This was especially common in Cantonese port cities where Chinese believe the rocking of the boat added an entirely new dimension to sexual pleasures. 
One source about these flower boats explains the difference between the Canton flower boats and other boats of that time. It reads, floating brothels at Wampoa helped keep the peace among the visiting foreign community. The floating brothels at Canton were more commonly referred to as flower boats. They serviced Chinese only. Until recently, little was known about the social function at these brothels. In the historical literature, they're often referred to as places of debauchery, which is not entirely true or accurate description of all of them. There are three distinctions that need to be made between the prostitutes in the Canton flower boats and those at Wampoa. First, girls in the Canton flower boats only serviced Chinese, whereas Wampoa prostitutes serviced anyone. Second, Canton flower boat girls tended to cater to the wealthy elite, whereas the Wampoa girls paid no attention to social status and accommodated anyone who had the money to pay. Third, the Canton flower boat prostitutes had their feet bound, whereas as far as we know, the Wampoa prostitutes did not. The reason why this is important to take note of is because she was not able to make a name for herself among these Chinese men. This is pure speculation, but should young Ching Shi have worked in the Wampoa flower boats, I doubt she would have gained the notoriety she did among the wealthy elite. Her striking beauty and poised nature apparently attracted incredibly high profile customers, such as courtiers of the Royal Palace, rich merchants, and many more. One of the men that was interested in her was none other than Cheng Yi, a well-established pirate. Some say he burned down the brothel she lived in, forcing her to join him. Others say he was intrigued by her intelligence and their partnership was purely business. Whereas others claim they simply fell in love and she agreed to marry him. Regardless of which is true, this is how Ching Shi joined the world of piracy in 1801. With the two together, the red flag fleet grew from 200 ships to more than 600. Eventually it said that there were even 1700 to 1800 ships under their control. Though some sources debate those numbers. You'll see a lot of sources disagreeing when it comes to this topic in just a moment. Their fleet was color-coded with the lead fleet being red and the rest of the ships being black, white, blue, yellow, and green, hence the name, the Red Flag Fleet. A lot of their money, it said, actually came from the British, according to one source. In pursuit of profit, but without silver to offer, Westerners, most notoriously the British, found alternative means to trade, some of which involved circumventing Chinese law, most famously by supplying opium and by negotiating with Ching Shi's pirates. China strictly forbade the trading of opium, but the British shipped opium from India and then sold it to smugglers who the East India Company officials knew would smuggle it into China on the company's behalf. One shipping captain, Alexander Hamilton, and no, not that Alexander Hamilton, no relation. Canton especially was a frenetic port where on any given day, no fewer than 5,000 junks, which is a type of Chinese sailing vessel, could be seen lying at anchor awaiting service. Apparently the emperor was complacent and when the state did intervene, its regulations encouraged the growth of the black market. Legitimate trade between China and Vietnam was stifled by imperial bureaucracy. So many Chinese sailors and fishermen relied on smuggling to get by. One source states, in practice, smuggling was an entry-level job that organically led to piracy. It also encouraged the growth of the black market in coastal border towns where smugglers could offload their cargoes. These towns later became pirate strongholds, having already developed the social and physical networks that pirates relied on to sell their booty. And this is really all I mean when earlier I mentioned that piracy was without a doubt romanticized to a certain context. This source really just makes it sound like fishermen smugglers may have been a more accurate description of piracy in certain contexts. Of course, as lawless as we may believe pirates to be, the red flag fleet had a few rules once Ching Shi joined, such as, 
Pirates who gave unauthorized orders or those who refused to follow orders were executed on the spot without a chance to justify themselves. All seized goods had to be presented for inspection. If any pirate was found hiding or underreporting goods, a part of their body was chopped off, depending on the scale of the crime. Loyalty and honesty were greatly appreciated and worthy pirates were rewarded generously, thereby setting an example for the others. Female captives needed to be treated respectfully. They were segregated based on their looks. The weak, pregnant, and unattractive ones were freed as soon as possible. The attractive women captives were held back for ransom. The pirates were given the freedom to marry these attractive women under mutual consent. Infidelity and rape were treated as a serious offense. These offenders were immediately hanged. In the cases of consensual premarital sex, both the offenders were executed. In a few cases, the man was castrated and the woman was banished from the fleet. Aside from this, economic reforms were sanctioned with the happiness of the crew in mind. They may be incredibly strict and murderous, but they kept those loyal to them well taken care of. So it's hardly any surprise that many pirate groups in the region began emerging themselves under the red flag fleet banner, contributing to their growth. In addition to this fleet, the couple also formed the Cantonese Pirate Coalition with Pirate Wu Xier, although sources imply that this might be after Tang passed away or at least in the same year that he did. The point of this to say is that their fleet was growing massively. This pirate coalition or pirate confederacy as some have called it was both rudimentary yet terrifying. As for weapons, it's said that they would brandish bamboo poles tipped with machete-like blades and these pikes could be anywhere between 15 to 30 feet in length. Another weapon pirates favored was the Jingal, a eight foot long musket-like contraption that required two comrades to fire the gun while resting it on the shoulders of a third. The pirates loaded their Jingals with scrap iron or metal balls that weighed slightly less than a pound. As a nod to their previous lives, the pirates also carried a variety of bladed weapons that they had used as fishermen. They also had a predilection for fire, often filling older boats with dry straw, setting them aflame and directing them towards enemies that they wanted to scatter. The strategy was also apparently common in ancient Greece too. And as for these recommendations, and by recommendations, I mean rules, they highly suggested that merchants purchase a private passport or a protection slip readily available from local agents on the region's shorelines. You could literally even waltz right into their headquarters in Macau and buy one, a well-known center for gambling. Many traders compiled as this was a guarantee of safety from other Red Fleet flag ships. Apparently when East India Company compiled, reports of seized ships practically ended altogether in 1803. Interestingly, although many of the pirate leaders were habitual opium users, they chose to tax distributors and buy the opium rather than raid the ships that carried the illegal shipments. This incongruous absence of violence suggested that the pirates had reached an agreement with the smugglers. Impressive, considering that the East India Company's private army was larger than that of Britain itself. Already pressed by China's high import duties, however, the British were surely frustrated by what was in effect double taxation and a fluid one at that. This source says that it's reasonable to suspect that they may not have been paying to pirates not to attack them, but to discourage, or in other words, attack other competition. However, it wasn't just their fleet and funds that grew, but their family. It's said that unable to conceive, the couple decided to adopt a young fisherman in his mid twenties named Cheng Po from a nearby coastal village. However, considering that Ching Shi would actually have been 26 when she married Cheng, this puzzled many of the crew members. Why adopt a fully grown man? Some sources claim that Ching Shi did this deliberately to secure command of the fleet since she could actually marry this adoptive son when Zhang died. 
and the adoptive son, Cheng Po, would essentially be a figurehead while Ching Shi took control. Others say she had an illegitimate relationship with him even while married to Zhang. Other sources argue differently and state that Cheng Po Sai had been a fisherman's son that was kidnapped and pressed into service when he was 15, but as he rose to the ranks, he caught Ching's eye. Regardless of what happened, he was adopted by the couple and just six years later after they'd been married, Zhang died in 1807. Some say that he died in a typhoon, others say he died in an accident falling overboard. Some even point their fingers at his wife or his new heir. Whatever the reason, Qing Shi had to act fast before the empire she helped build fell apart. The first step was to solidify a partnership with Cheng's official heir, Cheng Po Sai. The partnership soon became intimate despite the fact that legally she was the younger man's mother. The pair's first success came when they secured the loyalty of Cheng's relatives who were all leaders in the fleet. Now, again, there's going to be a lot of disagreement here as to who actually ran the red flag fleet at the time, whether it was Cheng or Qing, but there can be no doubt that Qing Shi had massive influence no matter which way you see it. It's said that when Cheng died, there was an internal rift for power among the power-hungry captains of partnering ships, but Qing Shi won over the support of factions loyal to Zhang, including his nephew and cousins. The power-hungry traitors were then executed in public to serve as an example to deter any future coups. Some sources claim that this was when the first rule came into play, killing anyone that disobeys immediately without question. Qing Shi became an absolute monarch and made sexual violence punishable by death. Yet on the other hand, same-sex activity wasn't seen as infidelity, but more akin to team-building exercises to the shock of their Western captives. Not surprisingly, the Confederation's management structure had more in common with a military unit than a corporate entity. There is an obvious similarity. The pirates' raids involved combat and a significant risk of bodily harm or death. And so their need for motivation and discipline were no different than that of the Chinese Imperial Navy. Chang or Chang, which the spelling differs from source to source, had also become a respected leader. He was utterly loyal to Xi, but his self-anointment as their religious leader was said to be his masterstroke. He maintained a strong relationship with priests, donating to temples and holding them under his protection. In return, oracles always seconded his desires and rarely contradicted him. In one battle with the Imperial Navy, Pao led the pirates from the bow of his ship. When a cannonball was fired directly at him, he fell to the deck. Both the pirates and the Navy assumed he was dead, but when the smoke cleared, he was standing in his original position unfazed. It was only a graze. Cheng and Qing Shi, as odd as their relationship may have been, made an unstoppable team. It also happened to be around this time that the prime movers of the anti-piracy campaign began hunting the pirates. Sources say that the effective battle was in 1804, while others point to it being 1807, and still others claim it was actually in 1808. The point is the pirate hunters began to be very feared among pirates. In 1807 or 1808, and again, sources differ once again, but Qing and Chang Pao took action against the pirate hunters and according to one source. Under cover of darkness, he attacked the pirates with fire ships, yet Qing and Tao's forces emerged the next morning, having won an astonishing victory. Li was killed, 15 junks sunk and the rest captured. Cao followed up the victory by launching a campaign of devastation against the province. He sailed up the Pearl River in smaller boats to threaten the city of Canton. But as he advanced, his retreat to the sea was cut. Resourceful as ever, Pao took men on shore and looted the surrounding villages. 
After a string of humiliating defeats, the Ting Navy lost over 63 vessels during 1808, and the pirates essentially now ran the entire coast. It would seem devoid of protection, the local populace took matters into their own hands and banded together in militias for mutual support. They laid ambushes for the pirates, some of which worked, but more often than not, the pirates emerged from the hail of tiles, lime buckets, and rocks determined to teach them a lesson. In August, 1808, Powell burned a village of Sunshine to the ground and beheaded 80 villagers, hanging their heads from a banyan tree as a warning. The women and children were all captured, hiding in a temple and brought back to the fleet. In September, he launched an attack on the island, killing a thousand people and capturing only 20 women. 1808 was their year. Not saying that's a good thing at all for the poor citizens around them though. Sources say that through her strength and courage, Ching Shi became a powerful female pirate. However, I can't really call her actions all that courageous when she would raid towns, behead villagers, and control basically the entire criminal element of the South Chinese Sea. She set up an ad hoc government to support her pirates, including establishing laws and even taxes up to 80% of loot. An ad hoc movement, if you haven't heard the term before, is basically a government that is set up for a specific task. In Ching Shi's case, it was to extort the hell out of merchants wanting to pass through the South Chinese Sea. Now, I get that people might say, hey, male pirates were just as bad. How come they go down in history as these swashbuckling adventurers and Ching doesn't? Personally, I think Ching Shi deserves just the amount of attention that male pirates do. Yet I don't think that either her nor her male counterparts deserve entirely good attention. Ching may have had a few rules that benefited women on her ship that men didn't, but her slaughtering of innocent villagers sort of destroys any chance of admiration. As one source puts it, through careful and ruthless management, Ching Shi made the bloody and chaotic work of piracy into a highly organized business, and business was good, making her a very wealthy woman. And of course, like so many male leaders, conquerors, and generals throughout history, her prosperity and success came at the cost of innocent lives. Her remarkable history is a reminder that regardless of the limitations placed on them, women can be anything that men can be. Brilliant and brutal, courageous and cruel, powerful and dreadful. At this time, Ching Shi was on top of the world. She was unstoppable. She was reaching the peak of her pirating career. However, things were about to change. After all, a pirate controlling a massive part of the emperor's land and subjects, well, you can imagine he wouldn't be too happy about that. And before we continue on, we're just gonna take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. Five years ago, Felix Gray realized that we have a problem with technology. We strain our eyes a lot and perhaps some eyewear would help that. So that's why Felix Gray set out to create eyewear that would improve our relationship with technology. Felix Gray lenses filter 15% more of the most important blue light. So it doesn't matter if you're heading back to the office, back to school or back to whatever, you can count on Felix Gray. They have a ton of different frames to pick from, different types of lenses from prescription, non-prescription, readers, even glasses for kids, whatever you need, they have a really good variety. And something that I thought was really cool is they even had frames that were like a little wider or a little narrower. They had some where the bridge was a little flatter or a little taller. There's a lot of ways to customize these frames. I have the Volta pair in black. I really love them. I think they're fun, they're stylish. I don't have a prescription, but so for me, it's all fashion, but you can get them with prescriptions too. So if you wanna try some Felix Grey glasses, make sure to go to felixgrayglasses.com slash prism. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com slash prism. Free shipping, free returns, free exchanges, felixgrayglasses.com slash prism. 
Now, at first, Ching was able to handle the emperor's armada. Instead of fleeing from the emperor, she sailed out to meet him with her fleet and managed to steal 63 of the large ships sent against her and convince most of the surviving crews to join her. And by convincing them, it was really just giving them the option of being nailed to the deck by their feet and beaten to death or becoming members of the Red Flag Fleet. It's said that the admiral of the fleet sent against her even committed suicide before he could be captured by her. Legend also has it that one Navy fleet sent to destroy her retreated upon first sight of her ships. And for three masterful years, her control over the waters was so complete that she alone, for a fee of course, could provide a vessel with safe passage. Around this time, one of Ching Shi's former captives, Richard Glasspool, was held from September to December in 1809 before he was ransomed. Although Ching Shi may have had incredible power, he said that the atmosphere was full of dirt, overcrowding, boredom, and rat breeding. We lived three weeks on caterpillars boiled in rice, he said. The atmosphere was obviously filled with violence and plundering. Another notable battle took place around this time as well, which actually finally marked the demise of the powerful Red Fleet. This became known as the Battle of the Tiger's Mouth. According to one source, this was because of the arrogance of her partner, Cheng Po, who decided to confront a Portuguese flotilla, which simply means a fleet of ships that were stationed in their city colony of Macau. As much as they frustrated the King government, the red flag fleet had left European vessels alone, but the temptation became too great. And in early September, 1809, the pirates seized a Portuguese trading ship traveling from Timor to Macau, then both Portuguese colonies. They killed the entire crew before making off with their loot. And so the battle began in September, 1809. The assistance from the British fleet never arrived, but the Portuguese still managed to win that day. This caught the attention of the Chinese government and they proposed a joint operation, tripling the Portuguese artillery pieces. This obviously was not good news for the pirates. At this point, they were no longer labeled as bandits who seek to profit within an existing system, but rebels who seek to supplant the state system itself. Ching Shi and Cheng Pao were no longer talking about simple profits and theft anymore, but they had wanted to seize control and the imperial government was eager to see them taken down. In December, Chung lost 15 ships, and by January, he failed spectacularly when he threw every resource he had at the Portuguese. Apparently, the 300 ships he sent out against the Portuguese struggled to maneuver around one another, offering up a slow, clustered target for the superior Portuguese artillery. It wasn't until January 1810 that Chung defeated the Sino-Portuguese fleet as Kuo's surrender had set off a chain of reaction of events. Over 9,000 pirates had laid down their arms and it became clear that the Red Fleet was falling apart. I can't be sure if the Portuguese really did the damage they have claimed to, or if it was betrayal or the blockade that ultimately spelled their undoing, but it was wartime shenanigans. If I had to guess, I'm sure it was probably a combination of everything. After holding out for two weeks from the blockade, Chung sent out a request to the Portuguese commander to negotiate the surrender. The leader of the fleet, Alco Forado himself, spoke to Chung, who capitulated to the king authorities. Two months later, on April 20th, 1810, Chung and Chung's fleets were formally handed over, consisting of just under 300 ships, 2,000 guns, and more than 25,000 men. The governor of the Guangdong province accepted the surrender. Some sources state that Ching didn't initially want to surrender, but she unexpectedly showed up at the governor's home to work out the treaty herself. Chung went from being a pirate to a pirate hunter with 30 ships of his own as a private fleet. Piracy was crippled in the region in the 1820s because of his efforts. Ching Shi, on the other hand, kind of retired. She and Chung were officially married by Zhang, which was the same governor that actually oversaw their surrender in 1813. 
She gave birth to two children, one son and one daughter, though some sources debate if she had a daughter or if the state that her daughter's whereabouts have long since been lost to history. Her son, however, definitely existed. Jingxi even negotiated the rights to keep her fortune and acquire a noble title, Lady by Imperial Decree, which entitled her to legal protections. Her husband, Cheng, earned a promotion following the successful capture of the wanted pirate Ku Shi Er. In 1819, Cheng was appointed deputy general in Fujian, where he served until his death in 1822. Legend says that he did hide his treasure at what is now known as Chengpo Cave on Chengtao Island, six miles off the coast of Hong Kong. However, given that he and Ching Shi were allowed to keep their fortune, I'm not sure how true this would be, especially since nothing to date has ever been found. As for Ching Shi, now twice widowed, she moved to Macau where she opened a gambling house and a brothel. Of course, Ching Shi couldn't stay in retirement and peace and quiet forever. In the later years of her life in 1839, the Chinese fought the first of several opium wars with Britain. China found their Navy outnumbered, outgunned and outstrategized. It's said that Ching Chi herself returned from her former pirate confederacy very briefly to serve as an advisor to the Navy. It's said that she did end up dying peacefully in 1844, a grandmother of 69 years old and her descendants are actually still alive today. This is perhaps one of the reasons why Ching Chi is so legendary. Not only was she an incredibly notorious female pirate, but she managed to escape capture and death altogether. I don't really know that that's a good thing or not, but at the very least, it's quite an impressive one. All in all, I don't know just how powerful she really was or if her husband commanded the ships or if it was her. It seems like they most likely shared the power though, as uncommon as that may have been at the time. Some sources also claim that the very codes that have brought her so much praise may have been exaggerated and her actions diminished in favor of seeing Ching Chi as a badass pirate queen. Even though some writers have seemingly hailed her as a hero because of her code, well, she still took hundreds of women captive and most likely sold a lot of them into slavery. History is sometimes quite ugly after all, especially in the world of pirates. With all of that being said though, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the recent episodes. Thank you for spending some of your time here with me today. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, I'll see you in the next one. Bye.